Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Mayo, the founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. Welcome to today's episode. Uh, today we have Mario Alazara. Did I say that right, Mario? Mario. Oh, yeah. Mario. We're from Jersey. Yeah. So we get Mario's down here. We got Mario where you are. You and a little character uh, from, a, from a video game that you know, was wonderful and integral in my life. But yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll respect it by saying Mario. If you come to Jersey, you just know you're going to be Mario. Gotcha. Yeah, and New York. So just, you know, same thing. Nobody's Mario in New York. He's Mario. Have you heard that before? I have. Yes, I have. Okay. So uh, today we'll let him tell his story of resiliency. Uh, we were turned on by another person who was a member of our Street Cop Training Facebook group who suggested that we interviewed Mario after, see, I keep doing it, Mario, uh, after we had, you know, requested suggestions people have on the podcast. So without further ado, Mario, go ahead and tell everybody all about yourself. Right. I am a uh, retired uh, police detective from the city of Somerville. Somerville is a, uh, a community just outside of Boston. Our department, uh, when I left, was about 150 police officers or so. Uh, my last four years of my career, actually five years of my career, I spent in Boston at the ATF as a uh, task force officer. Uh, okay. When did you start your career? How old were you started and what year was that? I started my career in 1998. I was 32 years old. Hey, late, late, late bloomer at the police department game. Yeah. Were you the oldest in your academy? Uh, I was not the oldest. I was probably middle, middle of, the, of the road. Wow. How old were the oldest guys in your academy? Uh, Gordy Clark was 51. Well, do you guys have age limits or restrictions in Massachusetts? I think I lost your microphone. Some communities have age restrictions, but not all. I I can't I can't hear you, dude. I don't know what what happened with your mic. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's better. Yeah, some communities don't have restrictions. Some do. Okay, interesting. So so Somerdale has no age restriction. No. Yeah. Oh, does not. Does not. Somerville. Oh, sorry, Somerville. Yeah, going through the academy at fifty-one. That must be uh, an interesting. Uh, adventure. That was tough for Gordy, yeah, but he made it through. Listen, there are guys in a two of twenty one that can't make it through. That fifty one people fifty one can out, outrun uh, them. You know, we we have an age restriction in New Jersey with um with a pass of four years if you have previous military experience. So the oldest that you'll really catch here is maybe thirty eight, thirty nine in the police academy. Uh, but I know other states have different restrictions, different rules. But as it's that's actually a state rule here. So I would imagine most police academies. Probably about 24, 25 is how old recruits are typically here in New Jersey. So that's why I asked. So in 1998, you start the police academy, you go out, you um, graduate, you hit patrol. Tell us a little about your career. I had a, I had a very, very good um, patrol career. Uh, probably three years into my patrol career, I landed the case of my, my lifetime. I uh, single-handedly took out a, a Brazilian organized crew. They called themselves the Brazilians Ocean's Eleven. It's like the movie. Uh, with the help of an informant, I took out this crew of 11 individuals with the help of the state police, put them all in jail, got some of them deported, solved 73 house breaks and about 14 armed robberies and a host of other crimes. You said, well, you were a patrol, detect uh, patrol officer or detective? As a patrolman. Well, that's great. You know, it's, I, I often 
give credit to those people who maybe work in an agency that gives them the ability to do that kind of work as a patrol officer, but those who have the initiative to do that work as a patrol officer. I remember hearing, um, I had a dispatcher give me a compliment one time. She said, you know, the extra work you did today is more than we've seen anybody do in 23 years. And it took you 15 minutes to resolve this whole thing. And most people here would just pass that along to somebody else. I said, if I can do it, I'll do it. So that's good. That's awesome, man. That's great. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. So how long before you became a detective? The following year, 2004, I, uh, I became a detective and um, had a great, great career of detectives as well. I worked a lot of major cases, some homicides, some shooting investigations, some drug investigations. And then I started getting into the guns, buying guns, well, again, with the use of confidential informants and whatnot. And I got introduced to some of the guys at the ATF. And I was doing so many of these buys that the ATF said, hey, we should bring this kid on to, to the task force. I mean, he's, he's bringing more guns in than some of the agents at, at the ATF in Boston. So they came to me and asked me if I was interested in, in going. I certainly said, absolutely. It's a great, great opportunity. They went through the proper channels through my chief, the mayor of the city, and uh, they signed off on me going to the ATF. That's amazing. That's, that's, that's great, man. I'm glad you got recognized for the hard work in the beginning and had opportunity. Unfortunately, some people find themselves at agencies where the hard work doesn't really come with the rewards often. Uh, but I don't want anybody listening to this to sort of dissuade you from doing your work. I always often tell people when you go to work for the day, as long as you can come home at night, look yourself in the mirror and say, I did what I could with what I had today. I did the best that I could for what I, what they gave me, a 10-hour shift, a black and white car, and uh, I had to answer six service calls, but I had two hours to be proactive, and I did what I could. I did my best today, and this is what I got. And tomorrow will be better, and then maybe one day you'll get the recognition that you're looking for from somebody, which is a great way to live rather than chasing all these things of dangling carrots. So whether things worked out for you in that regard, I'm sure you probably had the same mindset. You just probably enjoyed the job a lot, and you're a worker. I ate, bled, and breathed this job. I mean, it was just my life. I loved being a cop. Yeah. And I think a lot of us can uh, agree with, it was more of a calling for us and something that we had to do with our lives in order to feel like there's some satisfaction and accomplishment. It's almost like a, like a calling. It's who you were when you were born. You were just leading up to this point where, what did you do before being a cop? I worked in a bank. Interesting. I was a banker. I, wow. uh, I started out, I started in banking right out of high school. I was a teller, um, then became a customer service representative. From there, I went into uh, mortgage collections. So um, people that didn't pay their mortgage, I was the guy that they, they hated. I would call you every month and say, you're past due on your mortgage. From there, I went to loan originations, and then I was a, a loan officer. For you know personal loans and car loans. Interesting. That's uh, that's interesting. Lead up to uh, to your law enforcement career. All right. Let's let's go to the um, to this incident that changed the path of your life and some of the things behind it. And then along the way, if you think there's any critical advice you can offer during this experience, I'm sure people will find extreme value in tuning into this to hear it from somebody who's been through such a traumatic incident. So. The day that this incident occurred, um, was there any weird 
feelings going on, any kind of weird, strange stuff in the air, you could take it from there. Tell me, tell us all about it. No, it was um, another, just an ordinary day for me for, uh, for work. Uh, there's a kind of a, a backstory to this whole thing. So basically, um, there's a federal law called the, uh, the Gun Law of 1968. And that what, what that does is anybody that purchases more than two firearms in the span of five business days, the local FFL, the gun dealer or store, is required by federal law to report those transactions to the ATF in that region. Did you know that? I did not. Most cops don't. It's a federal law. So if you buy more than two firearms in five between five business days, that gun store that you buy the gun off of, they're required to report those transactions to the ATF. Okay. When we get these, these multiple sales reports, our job as a, an agent or a TFO is to go make a visit at the home for that buyer, knock on your door, sit down with you at the kitchen table. You're going to show me the firearms. Uh, so I can see that they're properly secured, paperwork's in order. I, I write a quick affidavit that night, a little report, and that constitutes assault. That's how we bump our stats up at the ATF. So these happen quite often, and I would say 95% or more of the time, it's always legit. It's either a guy, who, a guy or a gal who, they love guns, they're pro-Second Amendment. They're just normal people that want to have firearms to protect themselves. And their families, which is totally cool. Um, but in this particular case, I had a young man who was 21 years old in my city who bought 10 guns in a week. So as I'm looking at this report, I said, holy shit. This kid bought 10 guns. He's 21 years old. What 21-year-old do you know that buys 10 guns in a week? Not many, I would say. So what I did was I knew his name. As soon as I saw his name on the paper, I said, shit, I know this kid's name somehow. So I remember sliding over to, to the left side of my cube at the office in Boston, and I fired up my sellable police laptop, and I queried his name. Lo and behold, it was a kid that I had charged four years prior on an armed robbery call with a sawed-off shotgun. Wow. He was never convicted for it because my victims were shitheads, and they didn't want to cooperate in court, you know? Mm -hmm. so and they ended up getting dismissed, but nevertheless, he's got this charge on his BOP, his Board of Probation. Yeah. So I'm looking at it and I'm saying, how can a kid from Somerville, Massachusetts, buy 10 guns up in New Hampshire with the charge of armed robbery on his criminal history? How is this possible? So that prompted me to do a little bit more investigating. And uh, what I did through my investigation was I learned that Matt Crystal, that's the kid's name, he met a kid up in New Hampshire, went up to, up to New Hampshire and met him, this, this young man, and he paid him $500 and he said, put my name on your lease. Show that I live here in New Hampshire with you and tell him. The kid took his money and when he renewed his lease, it was, I think it was like towards the end of the month anyway, his lease must have been up. He renewed his lease and put Matt Christer's name on there as a roommate. Even though Matt Christer did not live up there, he lived with his mother in Somerville. So on October 8th, Matt Christer, with a copy of this fictitious lease in hand, went to the RMV in New Hampshire and he obtained a uh, New Hampshire driver's license, all the while having a Massachusetts, active Massachusetts driver's license. 
and you know, I'm sure, like in your state, you can't hold dual licenses. Right. You're going to have one has to be suspended or expired or whatever. So this kid's now, he's got an active mass license and an active brand, brand new acquired New Hampshire driver's license. And on October 8th, he went in, I think it was 1030 in the morning, if I'm not ra- ra, if I'm correct. And he got this new license. And within 20 minutes, he was at the gun, gun store buying his first two guns. Wow. So he made a beeline from the registry to the gun to the gun shop. Wow. And then he repeated this process of buying the guns for the following week or that week, bought 10 guns in five days. So I find all this out and I continue to dig. And right around that time, I was assigned a new partner. Um, it was a, a, a guy by the name Brian Higgins. Brian was a new ATF agent. He, his former life, he was a lieutenant with the uh, fire department in Cambridge. He left the hose draggers and joined Team America, became a cop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just he just graduated Flexi, and he was assigned up to Boston. And I was a real, real busy body as a cop, and my boss assigned him to me and said, hey, work with Mario. He's got a pretty good case going on right now. And uh, Brian and I kind of ran with it a little bit. So what we did in de- doing some more digging, we learned that uh, Matt Krister was at a house party in Somerville over the summer. And he was stabbed in the shoulder because of some altercation that happened at this party. Not a life-threatening injury, but he was stabbed nevertheless. So I used the ruse. I called him up. I had a cell phone. I called him up. And I told him basically that um, we made an arrest that night. I didn't tell him I was with the ATF, of course, at that point. I had told him I was a solvable detective. Luckily, he didn't remember me from our interaction years prior. And um, I told him that uh, we had someone under arrest at the station. And the kid that we arrested gave up the kid that stabbed him, gave us the name. So I called Matt up and I said, hey, I'd like to show you a photo array. We have the identity, the name of the person that assaulted you and stabbed you. Would you be willing to come in tomorrow and sit with my partner and I, and we can go over a photo array? And if you can pick the kid out of this photo lineup, we'll go lock him up for you. And he said, really? You'll do that? I said, of course. We're the police. That's our job. And he agreed. I said, all right, meet me at the station tomorrow at 5 p.m. And uh, he agreed. So now, the next day, uh, my partner Brian and I are at the station. We're waiting on him. He drove a, a red two-door Honda Accord. That was the car that he owned and he operated. So Brian and I are at the front door of the station. We're waiting on this kid to pull up into the front parking lot. At five, at roughly 5 p.m., out of the corner of my eye, I see a red Honda Accord driving ever so slowly by the entrance of the parking lot to our police station. Now, the, the parking lot was completely empty. You can fit probably about 20 cars up front. A back parking lot's even bigger. But this kid didn't pull in. He just drove right up to the entrance, to the opening, and he kind of like stopped for a second and paused, and then continued driving. And Brian and I looked at each other and said, what the hell is that? What's he doing? He knows where we are. He lives in the city. Why isn't he pulling in? He continued, he continued by the opening of the, of the parking lot. So out of curiosity, Brian and I opened the doors, walked down the walkway, out into the street to the sidewalk. We looked up the street to see where we was going. And we saw him pulling in or taking a right onto Rossmore Street, where he disappeared. 
Moments later, he comes walking around the corner with his little gangster strut, walking towards us. Of course, my partner Brian wanted to kill him at that point. He wants to punch him in the head. I'm like, relax, calm down. Let me do all the talking, you know. So Matt approaches us. I put up my hand to shake his hand. How you doing? Detective Oliveira. This is Detective Higgins. We're the ones that are going to show you the photo array. And I said, come on in. Relax. He was a little nervous. He's a young kid, you know. So he walks into the station with us. We bring him into the DB, the Detective Bureau. And we sit him into one of the interview rooms. And I have a, a manila folder with a bunch of white copy paper inside the folder. No photos. And I had a stapler on top of the folder as a paperweight. And he's looking at the folder. He keeps staring at it. And to kind of like distract him a little bit, I, I offer him a coffee. Matt, you want a coffee or water or something? He, he asked for a cup of water. So I went out to the bubbler, got him a, a water, come back. And I said, hey, Matt, before we go into this photo array, you have an ID. I got to put your ID, a copy of it, in the case file. So when this thing goes to court, if he goes to court, we want to be able to show the DA that we showed the right victim these photos, you know. And uh, he said, yeah, I have a license. He reaches into his wallet, and he hands me his New Hampshire driver's license that he just got. So I look at it, and I'm looking at the issue date, and it says October 8th, the day that I know that he got it. And I said, Matt, this was just issued just a few days ago. What have you been doing all this time? You're 21 years old. I've seen you drive around the city many times. Have you been riding a bike up to New Hampshire? Like, you just got a license at 21? And um, he looked at me. He didn't know what to say at that point. And I said, you have a mass license, don't you? He said, yeah, I do. I said, do you have it with you? He actually says, yeah, sure. Do you want it? And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be easier than I thought. He hands me his mass driver's license as well. So now I'm actually holding both licenses in my hand. And I look at Brian. And I, w- I wink at him. And I said, I'll be right back. I'm just going to photocopy this thing. So right off the gate, I got him at least for that minor charge, you know, Chapter 90, Google licenses. I know it's a, sh- a shit charge, but nevertheless, it's something. I got him at something at this point. So I make the copies. I come back to the, to the room. He's sitting down. He's getting a little nervous now. So finally, I, I think it's time to give it up. And I tell him, Matt, you're not really here for a photo array. You're here because we know that you bought 10 guns. And we want to see. This is Special Agent Brian Higgins, and I'm with the ATF as well. And he just sunk in his seat, turned white as a ghost, and tears started flowing from his eyes. And to be honest with you, I felt bad. I felt bad. Ask you a question: Do people have to comply with it by law? With, with what? Like the inspe- like if they purchase more than two guns or ten guns? Yes, you have to. Is that part of the, the deal of owning a firearm? Right. You don't have a choice. Well, you don't have a choice. So you forfeit as a right when you make purchase of, of firearms. Yeah. What if somebody says, no, you're not coming in to see my firearms? What do you guys do? Well, that's never happened, so I don't really know. I wouldn't have to go to my boss for that. I don't know. Okay. Just out of curiosity. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's some legal action that, they, that they've taken. I would never- imagine, yeah. Yeah, never happened. Um, so I give up that we're from the ATF and we want to see these guns. And I tell him, Matt, where are these guns? It's not going to be a problem if you have the guns. If you bought them legally, there's no issue here. And he says, I don't have them. Ryan said to him, what do you mean you don't have them? 
Did someone steal them? Did you sell them? Where are, where are the guns? And he said, I just, I just don't have them. I said, Matt, I just don't have them. Isn't cutting it. Answer the question. Where are the guns? And he said, I sold them. You sold them. Tell me how you bought them first. Like, what, what was your, and he told me, he told Brian and I, I would go up to New Hampshire. I'm selling to this kid named Dreddy. It's a black kid from Boston. He's a gang, a gang banger with Castlegate. And he said, Dreddy will call me. And he usually talks in code. He calls guns puppies and he calls ammunition food. And he would call me up and he'll tell me, I need a, I need a puppy. Give me a nine mil. Give me a 40 cal, whatever, whatever caliber. Matt would drive up to New Hampshire with his own money. And he normally would buy the guns for like 400 bucks cash. He would use a Dremel. He would take the serial numbers off the guns. Then he would meet Dreddy later on that night. And Dreddy would pay him 1800 for the gun. Mm. He was making 1400 bucks a gun. He made 14 grand in one week. Wow. Pretty good, huh? Not bad. In my world, we call that a straw purchaser. That's what a straw purchaser does. Someone mm-hmm. lawfully and then sells them on the, in the black market on the street illegally. Okay. So Castlegate, for your listeners, is a violent, ruthless gang that's been around in Boston, the Boston area for many, many years. If you Google their name, you'll see back in the late... Um, or mid-2000, 2008, 2009, 2010, there were over a 1,000 homicides and shootings in Boston that went un- unsolved at the hands of these criminals, Castlegate. They were always in turf wars with other, other rival gang members, and you know, et cetera. So this name was very, very well known to me um, during my tenure at the ATF and working with Boston PD a lot. So I knew right away that, wow, this is, a, this is a bad gang I can get into. So I had an itemization, a list of all the guns that Matt bought that week. And we sat down and we went through each gun. All right, you bought a 9mm, a SIG 9. Who did you sell that to? Dreddy. Okay, what about this Caltech 40? Who did you sell that to? Dreddy. Went down the list. After we went through the eighth gun, we are at the ninth and tenth gun. It was a 9mm, I forget the make and model. I asked him, where are these guns? And he said, I didn't sell them. Okay, if you didn't sell them, where are they? And he looked at Brian and I, and he kind of like shrugged his shoulders, and he said, they're in my trunk. And I said to him, is that why you didn't pull into the parking lot in that front of the station, because you were afraid um, that the guns were in the car? He's like, yeah, I didn't feel comfortable. Oh, really? So I said, here's a consent to search form. Read it. We read it to him. He signed it, dated it. I asked him for the keys. We had an officer come in and sit with him in the room to guard him or just to babysit him. While Brian and I took a walk, we found his car on Rossmore Street. He told us before we left, the guns are in a laundry basket in my trunk under dirty, dirty laundry. So we went, we found his car. We put the key in the trunk, popped the trunk, sure as shit. There's a laundry basket full of dirty clothes. Brian picks up the laundry basket, flips it upside down, and we hear thump, thump. We move away some of the clothes, two firearms, nine millimeter and a 40 cal, loaded, mind you. So, of course, we make them safe, take out the magazine clips out, 
put him in an evidence bag. As I'm walking back to the station, I called one of the AUSAs, the United States Attorney's Office, mm-hmm. Crowley, who was a supervisor. And, and I said, hey, here's what I got. I got this kid. He's a strong purchaser. He just confessed to buying guns, trafficking guns across state lines. So told him all the different federal charges. I said, my goal is to flip this kid and have him work as a, as a CI and see if he can get me into this Castlegate gang. I said, are you on board? Can you take the case? And can we do a profit with him? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Run with it, my heart. Take it. So I looked at Brian. I'm like, Brian, we're going to flip this kid. We're not going to arrest him. We're going to work him. And he's like, all right, let's do it. So now we got our, we got our game plan going back into the station with his two guns that we just found in his trunk. So we go back into the room. I sit down. I thank him right off, right out of the gate. Matt, thanks for being honest. We found the guns. We got them. Uh, but we have some problems. Problems that we can resolve. Of course, I was always optimistic and positive with him. I said, Matt, you're a young man. You're 21 years old. What you just confessed to me and the, the crimes I know you've committed already, you're looking at 20 plus years in federal prison. Right out of the gate. I said, that's just, I'm being conservative. It could be more. I said, but I'm not a judge or jury, but I'm just letting you know that you're in, big, you're in deep shit. Or we can kind of minimize this and, and work this off by you being a cooperating source and working with me to help me get into this gang and dismantle the gang and get some of these violent criminals who I know committed murders already off the street. And I told him, what do you want to do? You want to work for me as an informant or you want to go to federal prison? You got choice. He looked at Brian and I and he said, Dude, I ain't no fucking rat. I said, listen, Matt, think about it for a minute, okay? I'm going to give you a second. I'm going to go use the men's room. Be back in a minute. You think about it, and then you you give me your final answer. So I left to go to the men's room. I come back. He looks, he's now he's crying more at this point. I sit down with him. I look at him. I go, listen, kid, I'm looking to help you out. I'm not looking to jam you up. Help yourself out here. You don't have to do much. And he said to me, what do I have to do? And I told him, what we do with the ATF is called a reverse. I'll give you guns without firing pins. And you're going to sell these guns to these kids. And when they meet you at, at the location that I tell you to meet them, we're going to be there watching. And when the deal is made, we'll swoop in, arrest all of you. And once they get caught off and leave, we'll unarrest you and take your, your cuffs off. And we'll repeat this process until we dismantle the hierarchy of this gang. And eventually, as we're making these arrests, these guys will start ratting each other up. You'll be out of the picture. You'll be a free man. We'll put you in the witness protection program. And he looked at Brian and I and he said, all right, I'm in. I'll do it. I said, good. That's a good answer. <laughs> so I told him, I gave him a little rundown of what we were going to do the next day. I said, we're going we're gonna to do a reverse. It's going to be easy. You're going to meet us here at 11 a.m. tomorrow morning. And we're going to go over everything. You'll know who all the players are, who all the undercover officers are. So there's no surprises. And um, I asked him, I said, has Dreddy called you today? And he said, yeah, he called me earlier. I actually owe him a call. And I said, call him right now on speaker. Put, put your phone on speaker. I want to hear him. So he called up, called the number. And you can hear the kid on the other line. And t- sound like a total typical gangbanger. Yo, what's good? You know, using the N-word a lot. And, you know, it's all Young street kids talk, sadly. And 
you can hear the kids say, yo, you have any puppies for me? And I'm telling Matt with my hand, I'm putting two, two fingers up. I'm like, tell him you got two. I'm whispering. Tell him you got two. And he goes, yo, I got two. And, he, and the kid said, what about some food? Can you get me a few boxes of food? And I'm, again, two fingers up. And Matt says, yeah, I, I can get you two boxes of food. So we hang up. So I'm, now at this point, I walk Matt, Matt out to the front door. He's still crying. I can't believe I've done this. I'm like, Matt, listen, we're going to write this wrong. You're going to work with me. We're going to be a team. You, me, and Brian, and we're going to fix this. Okay? Just listen to me. Follow my lead. Follow my instructions. And you're going to be all right. I promise you. And I gave him a hug. And I let him go. Biggest mistake of my life. That was the biggest mistake of my life. Being a good guy. And someone with a heart and a conscience. You know? I'm one of six brothers. I have uh, five younger brothers, you know. So I looked at him. He could have been one of my younger brothers. Thank God none of them ever got in trouble like he did. But I just, something about him, I felt bad, you know. I know he fucked up, and I figured, you know, every, I believe everybody deserves a second chance. You know, we all make mistakes in life, and, you know, some worse than others. And, you know, God God is, is the person that's going to judge us, you know. I agree. We all deserve a second chance. So I let him go. The next morning, then is the next morning, I'm there with my whole team, half of my department, my deputy chiefs, my chief, my bosses from the ATF. And 11 o'clock comes and goes. And my boss is looking at me going, where's your guy? And I'm going to my cell phone, calling him, right to voicemail. He doesn't answer his phone. Now we're going on 12 o'clock, calling him again, right to voicemail. This kid's not answering. Finally, around one, after two hours, they call it off. Send everybody home. I'm pissed. I'm embarrassed. Here's a, here's a kid that I gave a break to, and he made me look like a chump. Now I'm thinking, I'm going to lock this kid up. And it's not going to be pretty. So my boss tells me, go to the federal courthouse and get federal warrants for his arrest. For all the violations you want, you want uncovered. I said, yes, sir. Luckily, I had all my reports caught up, up to date. I went to the courthouse, got my warrants. That night, I was home, and I was doing some work on the computer, and I had a fake Facebook account, like most cops do. And I'm a heavy set African-American girl. My name is Tasty Treaty Morrison. That's my fake name, yeah. Can I ask you who came up with that name? Never mind. Yeah, so... <laughs> So um, I would friend request a lot of these criminals that I would have. Hey, Mario, real quick, can I, can I just refer to you as Tasty from this point forward? Yeah, of course. All right, Tasty, let's do this. <laughs> so so <laughs> I, um, I, had, I had friend requested Matt at the onset of this investigation. He accepted my friend request. So I went on to his wall, his Facebook page, and you wouldn't believe what I saw. He wrote on his Facebook page, fuck the Sonable police. Fuck the ATF. I'm going to do me and do me strong. I remember taking my phone and I put it up to the screen and I took a, a picture of it and I sent a text to my partner, Brian. And I wrote WTF, question mark, question mark, question mark. Can you believe this? Mm. And Brian wrote back, he's done. He's done. So the next day, Brian and I made several trips by his house. We went in the morning, we went early evening just to see if he was around so we could lock him up. Nada. 
no sight of him at all. Ran his plate to see if anybody queried it. Nothing. He was a ghost. We made various trips throughout the following weeks. Midnight, I went I went by the three o'clock in the morning one time. Nothing. We figured he knows he's wanted. He screwed over the cops. He's probably somewhere in Florida by now, right? You would think. Are you, are you going to stick around? No. Who would? So a month goes by. It's now November 2nd. And he's out of my mind. It's, there's, there's a warrant out there in the system for him. And I'm thinking eventually somebody's going to run into this idiot. And they'll scoop him up for me and I'll get notified. So it was November 2nd. It was a Tuesday. And I remember I was doing a detail assignment that day. And I had intentions on working a night shift with Brian. I had a Dominican kid who lived in the projects, the Mystic Projects, who was going to work with me as an informant. And Brian and I were going to meet him and sign him up. So I met Brian at the station around 4 p.m. And um, we were just talking. And my phone rings. And it was the Dominican kid that I was going to meet. We had, we had plans on meeting him at uh, 6.30. No, I'm sorry, 6 o'clock. The, the kid called me and told me that he was running late at work and that he needed to bump it up to about nine. So I looked at Brian and I'm like, hey, our plans just got changed. The kid we were supposed to meet can't meet us. We're gonna, let's go do dinner or drive around and just, you know, ruffle some feathers and see what we can drum up for some business and then go meet him. You know, Brian's like, all right, why don't we take a ride by Christmas house again? You got the warrant? And I said, yeah, it's in my bag. I hadn't been there now for about a week or two at this point. So I'm like, can't hurt us, right? Let's go. All I had on, Dennis, was jeans, a Nike nylon hooded sweatshirt with a quarter zip, pancake holster, and my badge around my neck on a lanyard. I had no vest on, no extra magazine. My cuffs were on, my belt, the small of my back. I had nothing. Because I didn't expect to do anything. It was like a last minute suggestion by Brian. And we drive by, up, we go up to us. Um, do you think that was a mistake? Do you think that was a big mistake to show up with nothing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I see this uh, continuously throughout my career and, and even the field now as detectives. I was thought about, I think about this recently. I think about detectives who wear suits to work. And I think about agencies that are requiring them to wear suits to work. Well, I think a police, uh, a police detective now should probably be wearing more something along the lines of, unless they're testifying in court, um, maybe maybe like five eleven style pants, having a tack vest on, um, you know, and being prepared to be a police officer and not just grabbing two hours of Starbucks and then going out and doing the job because you're going to run into stuff too. And I see this continuously. I see detectives not wearing the, the bulletproof vests. They want to spend the extra money on it on their bigger shirts to hide the vest underneath. You know, but I knew detectives that were always prepared. But one thing I think about is like the shoes detectives wear, dress shoes typically. You know, I uh, I wore dress shoes this past weekend. I had to go to a christening at, at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And the, the, the shoes I, I, I wore were actually maybe about a year ago. They were so slippery. <clears throat> I fell and busted my ass in my driveway bringing in garbage cans. I actually slid down the handicap ramp because I have kids out of the stroller. So think of, imagine what it would be like to be a detective in a, in a situation dressed like you're going to a christening at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And I had a pistol, you know, I, 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 I'm the last ditch ever here, but I'm also not a police officer at this junction in time 
to have you take action. So, I, you know, I wanted to just intervene here for a second and remind those detectives out there that you're not Perry Mason. This isn't a fucking game. And stop trying to look cool. And if you're going to be wearing certain holsters, like a shoulder holster or something like that, I hope you know and have trained with it. And I say that from a place of concern, not from a place of pointing. Because uh, as Mario just said, this was a big mistake to to only show up with this. So these are some of these blessings, unfortunately, that come out of it. It's often in life, in many situations, we always have to learn the hard way. If things don't change, the hard way has been displayed. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just didn't want to pass by that. So, um, Brian, I'm in Brian's car. I jump in his car. I have my my um, briefcase or my bag, my you know, detective bag, warrants in there. We take a ride by his house. We, we turned on, left on Benton, and another left on uh, Gibbons. And I remember saying to Brian, the minute we turned on to Gibbons Street, which is his street, I said, Brian, what do we do if this kid's home? He looked at me and he said, you just spoke too early. Here's his fucking car. His car was in front of his house. So I was like, oh, shit. So I grabbed my cell phone. I called my sergeant detective, Joe McCain. And I called Jerry Radin, who was the street supervisor for patrol. Told him what I had. Told him to meet me up at behind Anthony's function hall. That's a building that was directly across the street from this kid's house. They have a little parking lot. If I could show you guys my PowerPoint, it, it makes sense. So we pulled into the back lot of Anthony's function hall where there's some shrubbery, some some cover. There's some trees, you know, abrovite trees. Mm-hmm. And it, it provided some cover, but there was a little entrance and exit that we could see directly to the front of his house in his car. Well, I'm parked in there and I'm on the phone and I'm briefing these two sergeants on this case that I've been working. He gave him a Reader's Digest version of what happened and what led me to there that night. And I said, he's, he's home, he's here. Why don't you guys come up? And keep in mind, it's election night in the city. It's around 6.15, 6, 6.20 p.m. It's pitch black. So it's dark, election night. It's supper time. You know, people are going to dinner. People are going to voting polls. I have tons of officers on assignment at these polling places as security, you know, as probably it is in New Jersey, right? Officers do polling assignments, right? During voting, mm-hmm. yeah, yep. yeah, yes, all over the country. So we're there. We're meeting the four of us: like myself, Brian, uh, Joe McCain, and Jerry Redden, and we're discussing the best plan of action. What do we do? This kid's a gun runner. He's home. He's got a federal warrant for his arrest. He's already screwed us over. He's probably going to take off. Odds are, for sure, he's going to take off. So. What's the plan? The plan ends up being, we're going to wait him out. I'm going to come across that opening of that parking lot. And when Matt comes out of his, his house and he goes to enter his car and he turns his back to me, when he puts the hand in, on the door handle, I'm going to come up from behind and just walk him in the back of the head, get him to the ground, cuff him up, bag him and bag him. Easy. Most of us have done that thousands of times in our careers, right? Come up from behind. You know, push the guy to the ground, cuff him up, element of surprise, he's not fighting you. Or very little fight, because he's just going to be surprised. And then I had Joe McCain was going to come up, he and Jerry were going to come up and flank me from behind and be my support on foot. Ryan Higgins was going to come out with his unmarked car 
up the wrong way with no headlights, and he was going to bumper lock him, bumper to bumper, so Matt can't put it to drive and take off and run people over. And then I had a detective, Ernie Nadeel, up at the end of the street in case Matt put it in reverse and went try to escape the other way. He was boxed in. So that was our plan. And I had to be extra careful because I couldn't let him see me. Because the minute he saw me, he was off to the races. He was a skinny kid, probably can run fast. I was in good shape anyway. And I'm thin myself. I, you know, but he has an advantage. I know those streets like the back of my hand. But what I don't know are the backyards. I don't know who's got trampolines, kids' toys, dog shit, broken fences. Who knows? I mean, sky's the limit in back, people's backyards. Mm-hmm. Right? Picnic tables, beach chairs, whatever's thrown about. And I've seen more guys get injured on foot pursuits at night. And, and they've lost careers. Broken knees, running into fire hydrants, um, you know, unsettled sidewalks that have little lifts. Oh, yeah. Guys are tripping over them. You trip over them during the day. Imagine at nighttime when you can't see and you're, and you're running. Yeah. Dangerous. So I had to be, I had to have the element of surprise. So as soon as we agreed upon this plan, I remember turning around and I looked through the bushes and I saw his porch light come on. And I saw him in the doorway. He had a black, puffy um, leather jacket. It wasn't leather. It was a puffy, like, down jacket. And he had his backpack um, slung over his shoulder. And he was waving to somebody inside the house. We later found out it was his mother. And um, I remember grabbing my radio out of my back pocket. Now, I had walked away. I'm about 25 feet away from my guys now. I grabbed my, my radio and I said, all units, our target's coming out of the house. Get in position. Get ready to move in. Those are my last transmissions. I have my gun out. Um, Behind the bush, behind that little Aphrodite tree. He comes out of his house with a, in a fast, fast walk. Slams the gate behind him. Gets to his car. There was no way in hell I was going to make it to him in time. He made it in his car. Shuts the door. Starts up the engine. Now I'm, I'm halfway across the street at this point. I make it to the car door. I open the car door. As soon as I open the car door, Brian hit him. We hit the car simultaneously, Brian and I. I get the car door, Brian bumps him. I grab the kid by the throat. I get my gun to his head and I'm giving him commands to get out of the car. Get out of the fucking car, you're going to jail. Get out of the fucking car. I got him by the throat. I got a death grip on him, right? He grabs me by my wrist. He's trying to get me off of his throat and he's screaming at me, fucking shoot me, fucking shoot me, fucking shoot me. And I have my gun and I'm jamming it out of adrenaline. I'm jamming it in the side of his head. And at one point, I remember looking at my gun and my slide was halfway back. My battery. And I said, oh, shit. I thought to myself, if my gun goes off and this kid's unarmed, I'm going to be out of a job. I'm going to be the one going to prison, not him. So I remember easing up off of his head, still holding on to his, to his throat. And right at that moment, my sergeant was screaming my name. Mario, Mario, Mario. And I looked over the roof of the car to my left to see what he wanted. He was running up the sidewalk with his gun in the air at full gallop towards me. And when I looked back down into the car, all I saw was flashes. Pop, 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 And my body took the impact of all these rounds. I was less than two feet away from this kid. Damn it. With my hand still on his throat. Wow. 
So I remember I fell out of the car, fell on my ass, and I was trying to get my my composure. I, I knew what was going on because I heard immediate gunfire at that point. Pop, 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 rapid fire. And I knew based on my training experiences, multiple people shooting. It was my guys, of course, shooting into this car. And, you know, I was trying to get up because my mind was, was working. I was telling myself, get up and get covered. And shoot this kid. Get up, get in a better position. You're right in the line of fire because all he had to do was just reach back down and shoot me. I was right there, three feet away on my ass outside the, the open door. So, again, I keep hearing gunfire, but I couldn't move. It felt like there was a Mack truck, truck sitting on me. And I'm trying to push myself off, but it's just, I was paralyzed. It felt like I just couldn't, I was dead weight. I couldn't move. And then, suddenly, I felt someone grab me. I felt someone grab my t-shirt, my shirt, my sweatshirt, and lift, my, lift me up off the ground. And everything was in slow motion at that point and echoing in my head. And I remember looking up. It was Brian Higgins. I remember him firing into that car. I, I remember seeing each case, shell casing, ejecting out of his gun. And I was following it with my eyes. And he was firing into the car. Bah, bang, bang. And then everything was going to distance. He dragged me across the street and left me under a parked car across the street, diagonally. And there I was on my side. Brian went back to the back of the car. So basically, if you can picture this, Brian was in the back of the vehicle shooting through the back windshield. Joe McCain, the sergeant, was running up, shooting through the front windshield. And Jerry Reardon was on the sidewalk shooting through the passenger window at the driver. They were all shooting at me and at each other. Crossfire. Major crossfire. Major. Brian saw that I was in a bad situation. He left his post because he had military experience. He had done a tour in Afghanistan, a couple tours, I think, and lost a buddy out there in the war. He had the wherewithal to leave his post, put himself in the line of fire, and drag me out of there. If it wasn't for him, I would have definitely been dead. And now, I'm on my side, and I could, I could see the kid in the car, because I'm diagonal to him. The door's open. I left the, door, the driver's door open. And he's He's ducking. He's looking, poking his head over the steering wheel, dodging bullets. And I said to myself, I got you, motherfucker. And I tried to lift my arm up to shoot him. My arm wasn't moving. All I heard was rattling. And I remember looking. I had a huge hole in my forearm, in my sweatshirt. Blood was coming out. I took a round that went through my forearm, out the back of my elbow. Jesus Christ. Couldn't pull the trigger. I felt so defeated. I remember just looking up at the sky. It was just there were stars there. I just I, I said to myself, I'm not going home tonight. This is it. I can't even fucking defend my guys. I can't defend myself. I can't defend my guys. I felt like such a failure at that point. It was the worst feeling of my life. You know, being useless and defenseless. And I remember my mind did something really miraculous at that point. I remember, you know, fading out all the, the noise, the gunfire, and the screaming and the yelling that was going on. And I remember like fun times of my life, my senior prom, you know, hanging out with my friends at, at a young age on, on Rush Street, 
playing, you know, street hockey and whatnot. And, you know, just doing things as a young kid. Like, I remember all the peaceful times in my life. You know, it was almost like my mind was preparing me to go to heaven, to die, you know, in peace. And then my mind shifted back to reality again, where I can hear the screaming and yelling. I heard the kid's mother on the front porch yelling, that's my son, you're shooting my son. And the guy's yelling, get the fuck in the house, get back in the fucking house, pop, 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 pop. Finally, the gunshots stopped. They ceased. There were 62 rounds fired. According to the state police who did the investigation post-shooting. So <clears throat> once they killed the kid, my guys all ran to me across the street. And they put me flat on my back. They told me I was, afterwards, when I got home from the hospital, I was ash gray and my eyes were rolling in the back of my head. And I was bleeding out profusely. And I remember, let me, let me digress for a second. Before the shooting stopped, when I was having those memories as a young kid, I remember snapping out of it and I was hyperventilating. And I remember putting pressure on my right chest where it hurt the most. I was putting a lot of, as much pressure as I could with my good arm. And I was telling myself, control your breathing, minimize the blood flow. Cause I was hyperventilating. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like breathing, panting like a dog. And I'm like, control your breathing, calm the fuck down. I'm telling myself, cause if you calm down, it's less blood that's going to be pumped. I could feel the blood like pumping out of me, like a hose. Of course, I'm trying to do everything I can to make it to lessen, you know, less blood's coming out of you. You can buy yourself more minutes. And that's what I, that was my game plan mentally. Buy yourself some minutes, calm the fuck down, breathe normally. So I remember taking a, a deep breath through my nose, breathing out with my mouth. I did that several times and I, I think I did a pretty good job. I calmed myself down a little bit. I was still, I think, hyperventilating, but not to the extent I was initially. And my guys came over to me. They were, they were slapping me. They were trying to get my attention, talking to me. And I remember reaching up. The first guy that I saw was Joe McCain. He's a big biker dude. I grabbed him by his shirt and I pulled him right, right to my face. And I said, Joe, don't let me fucking die. My son was three, three years old at the time. I'm like, mm. I got to get home to my boy. I can't die tonight. Don't let me fucking die. I have to get home to my son. My son needs his father. I can't fucking die. Get me to a fucking hospital. Now, throw me in your trunk. Throw me in the back seat. I don't fucking care what you do with me. Don't wait for an ambulance. I'm losing a lot of blood here. I'm not going to last. And there was, they were panicking too. So finally, the paramedics came. They got me on a gurney. And picture this, Dennis. Imagine if you hear this. As they were wheeling me by to bring me to the back of the paramedics um, ambulance, I heard my deputy chief ask another medic, How's my guy look? And I heard the medic, just as they whisked me by, I heard him say, I don't think your guy's going to make the trip. Oh, that makes Jesus. sense. I heard it's that. terrible. I heard that. But you know what? In retrospect, that actually helped me. That fired me up like you fucking wouldn't believe. I was so fucking pissed hearing that. I'm like, fuck you. Fuck you, I'm dying. I'm fucking living. And that's what gave me the drive to, to say, fuck that. I'm going to defy all odds. I'm going to fucking do everything I can to live. So I'm in the back of the ambulance, and I had two of my guys in there. One guy had his knee on my right side, and Brian had his knee on my left. And they're all bloodied up because of all because of all the blood that's squirting out and shit. And the paramedics trying to get an IV in me. And I'm yelling at them, do your fucking job and keep me alive. And I'm going to do my job and stay alive. You understand me? 
I get it home to my son. My son needs his father. And the paramedic, his name is Richie Roy. He said, uh, you have two boys? I said, what are you, a fucking asshole? I just told you I had one. I didn't know then he was trying to, he was checking my mental status. I thought I was being a punk. I told him I had a son. He's telling me I have two sons. So I make it to the hospital. It's chaos in the trauma bay, in the emergency room. Nurses are all around me. Everybody's all around me doing their thing. And, you know, they've stripped me of all my clothes. I'm freezing. And at some point, everybody disappeared, it seems. There was nobody around me. And I'm lying down flat and I'm staring at the ceiling at these bright lights, shivering. And I felt somebody standing to my left, just standing there watching me. Now, initially, I was... I was afraid to look initially, so I just kind of dipped my head to look. And I saw what I described an older woman. She was probably about 60, mid-60s, short, kind of ch chunky, and she had big round circular glasses. And um, this nurse came over to me. With one hand, she, she put her hand, her right hand, behind my head and lifted my head up a little bit and tilted it. And her other hand, she was massaging my forehead. And she kept saying to me in the softest voice, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And I remember looking in her eyes and I said, please put a blanket on me. I'm very cold. And I think she did because I was warm within seconds. It wasn't as cold. And then without any type of notice, they ran me out of that emergency room and they were flying down the hall. I was counting all the ceiling tiles and I could hear the doctors screaming, hold the elevator. We're going to floor two. Hold the elevator floor two. Now we're in the elevator. I can hear the doctor barking orders telling the nurses, fire up the x-ray machine. You get me O, o positive blood. Do this. X amount of milliliters of blood. And just talking medical shit, you know. And now I'm in the operating room within seconds. I'm there. I know I'm there because it's much quieter. Room's much warmer. And the lights are much, much brighter. And once again, I'm lying there. No one's around me. But I could see in the corner of my eye, the doctor over you know, putting his little thing on his head and his gloves and like a clanking of tools and shit. And I felt somebody standing again to my left side, just watching me. I tilt my head again. That's the same older nurse from downstairs. She comes walking over to me. Once again, lifts the back of my head with one hand, massages my forehead with the other. She keeps telling me, gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay. And I told her, just let me die. I'm tired of fighting can't hold on anymore. I'm tired. I'm not afraid to die. And she said, no, no, no. You're not going to die tonight. You're going to be okay. You're not going to die tonight. And she laid my head down and that's all I remember. I woke up um, a day and a half later in the ICU and I remember I was kind of like lying upright and I had a feeding tube through my nose into my stomach. My arm was up in the sling because I took a round to my right forearm. <laughs> And um, my wife and my parents were there. And when I opened my eyes and I realized it was them and I was still alive, I started crying, as you can imagine. And I was like, I'm alive? And they were like, yeah, you made it. And I remember looking down into my Johnny and I saw all the staples. And I said, they fucking got me like a fish. And they were like, yeah. You got shot a lot, a lot of times. The nurse heard them talking to me or me talking. She went and got the doctor. Dr. King, he comes walking in through the curtains. Today, champ, he squeezed my foot. He was at the foot of my bed. He squeezed my foot. And he goes, can you feel that? I said, yeah. 
I'm not paralyzed. He said, no, my friend, you're not. You are the luckiest SOB I've ever met in my life. I'm a, I'm a lieutenant colonel in the army. I've done about 14 tours to Iraq and Afghanistan. I have never seen anybody get shot up the way you did and survive. He told me he get shot six times, two to the chest, three in the stomach, and one to the arm, point blank range. Because you died on me twice, I brought you back to life. He told me the second time that you died on me, I cut your diaphragm, I reached in with my own hand, and I massaged your heart back to life. Holy shit. That's exactly what I said. Holy shit. Are you kidding me? And my parents are crying. My wife's crying. I'm like, you did that? You had my heart in your hand? He's like, yeah, it's, it's a maneuver that we've learned. And on the battlefield, I've done it before. I've saved guys, men and women, on the battlefield. And of course, I'm thanking them profusely. Thank you so much for saving my life. Thank you. And I said, hey, Doc, while I'm on the thank yous, I said, there was a nurse here that night that comforted me. and She helped me. Can you find her for me and get her? I want to meet her and I want to talk to her and thank her personally. They said, absolutely. Who, who are you talking about? And where did you see this lady? I said, I saw her in the emergency room and she was with me in the operating room too before you, before you opened me up. And he said, tell me what she looked like. I said, she was a short lady, 65-ish, dark rim, circular glasses, hair pulled back in a tight bun. And he said, and you saw her where? I said, I saw her in the trauma bay. And you guys ran me down the hall. You were pulling the bed. You were screaming to hold the elevator. We were going to floor two. You were barking orders, telling the nurses to fire up the x-ray machine. And as soon as I said that, he looked at my parents and he did the timeout sign. And he said, Time out. how do you know this? And I said, I was on the bed. Remember? He said, no, my friend. You were dead. You had no pulse, no heart rate at that point. We were giving you chest compressions and breaths and just trying to give you something before we could operate on you, just open you up, just to save you. He said, furthermore, dead people can't form memories. People with blood pressure that low cannot form memories. I don't know how you know this. It defies science. Um, I don't know what to say. And this nurse that you just described was not on my trauma team. I know my whole team. We were, we were waiting for you at the door. Your old partner called us from the crime scene and told us you were really bad. And we waited for you at the door in the emergency room for your arrival. And I can assure you there was no nurse on my team that looked like that. And when he said that, my mom had collapsed and fell to the ground crying. And I didn't, I didn't know why at that point, obviously. He, I asked him to, to keep looking for this nurse because, I, again, I'm... I'm dumbfounded myself. I did about three weeks in the hospital trying to recover and do the best that I can. Eventually, I, um, the day I was going to go home, they had a big press conference in, out in front of the hospital. And the nurses came up to my room. My wife was there. And they told me they were going to get me dressed and send me home. And I had staples still on in me. And I said, um, are you guys going to remove these or can I keep them on for another week? And I can come back in and you guys can remove them then. And they're like, no, we have to remove them now before you go home. I'm like, I wouldn't. I don't think I'm healed. It just feels really tender still. I don't mind, you know, keeping them off for another week at home. And they're like, oh, no, no, we have to remove them today. So they, they removed the staples out of me. Got me dressed, put me in a wheelchair and drove me down or, you know, wheeled me down to the front door of the 
the side door of the police department, the uh, hospital. Um, let's go back a second. My, my connection screwed up. Just go back to the staple part. You said they, 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 the nurse said, no, staples out now. Well, we're going to take staples out. Okay, just say, start from there. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, so the last 10 seconds. Yeah. So they removed the staples. They got me dressed, put me in a wheelchair, and they wheeled me down to the side entrance with this big press conference with all the local media and dignitaries and whatnot were all there. And I had a, um, a beautiful police motorcade home that day, about 65 somewhat cars, police cars, motorcycles from all different departments, gave me a police escort. I'll tell you, it was probably one of the proudest moments of my life. But to drive by all these cities and towns and having these cops get out of their cruisers and salute me. To me, it showed me that the thin blue line exists. Oh, yeah. The brother and sisterhood, it's there. It's there. It's strong. And oh, I, yeah. I was never so proud to be a cop at that moment. Seeing all these people who I didn't even know, you know, saluting me and getting out of their cruisers, you know, giving me the, the salute. It was, it was just a proud, proud moment for me. You know? So I make it home. I lived in Billericker at the time, which is about 20 minutes, 25 minutes from Boston. And uh, my mom was at my house cooking. I'm Portuguese. So she was cooking up a lot of food, probably for 200 people when we only had about 60 people bringing me home. And um, I make it home, right? Make it home. My boy's jumping up and down at the front door. He hasn't seen daddy in almost a month. I haven't seen him. I'm crying. I'm doing the best I can, walking gingerly up my walkway. And I open the door. I bend over. I give him the biggest hug. I'm crying. I give him a kiss. Daddy loves you, you know, as you can imagine. And when I stood up, I felt wet in my belly. And I reached under my sweatshirt with my hand. I pulled my hand up, full of blood. The deputy chief that was there, Roy Frost, he lifted my sweatshirt up and my shirt, my T-shirt. My stomach had come undone and my guts were hanging out. Holy shit. They had to lay me down in my front foyer of my house in front of my kid and my mother, pack me with towels and rush me back to the hospital in an ambulance. Oh my God. Imagine that luck. And I, I, all, I, all I did was swear, you can imagine, in that fucking ambulance saying, those effing bitches, they didn't, they didn't listen to me. I told them to leave those goddamn staples in, but they were in a rush to take them up. I was pissed. So I stayed another, shit, six hours in the hospital, going through tests to make sure there was no infections and whatnot, and they stitched me up. But they left two gaping wounds, one in the center of my chest and one right near my navel that were really deep. And the doctor told me, we're going to send you home, but we're going to have, have to have a nurse come and take care of these wounds every day until they're healed. And I'm like, what do you mean take care of them? And he said, she's going to pack them. I said, pack them with what? He said, it's, it's, it looks like wet toilet paper and it has a chemical. And what it does is when it goes in there, the chemical makes the flesh come together. Otherwise, we could stitch you up and the skin will heal, but people will be able to put their fingers in your chest and your belly. I said, well, I don't want that shit happening. I want to bring a lot of packing, you know? So, <laughs> so the next day, I'm at home. The nurse comes, and she's cleaning my wounds. She's done cleaning. She looks into her medical bag and notices that she's all out of gauze, whatever size that she wanted, three by five or whatever it was. So she asked my wife, she said, hey, Christy, is there a um, CVS nearby? I have to get some gauze. My wife said, I have to go there. Tell me what you need, you know, and I'll go pick it up and I'll bring it right back. So she tells my wife the size that she needs and the 
the, the make or the you know the, whatever it is the, the brand. Right. My wife leaves. She comes back a half hour later, not even, and she gives her the gauze and the nurse tapes me up and she leaves. Now I'm lying there by my mind my business, watching TV on the couch. I could hear my wife crying with me. She was sniffling in the kitchen. So of course I lower the volume on the TV and I listen for a second and I call her name. Christy, come in, come in here. And you could tell that she was crying. Her eyes were all red, watery. And she sits next to me and I said, Why are you crying? I'm going to be okay. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. And she said, look. And she had one of those pregnancy things. She put it in front of my face and I squinted. And I'm looking at it really close and it said pregnant. And I said, you fucking bitch. You cheated on me while I was in the hospital? I found out her wife was pregnant. Wow. Nine months later, on my birthday, my son was born. Wow. Instead of God taking my life that night, he gave me a life. And I named my son after my surgeon. Oh, wow. And he was Godfather. Oh, wow. That's my way of thanking my doctor who saved my life. You know, who pulled off a miracle himself. And um, so that was a, a moment that I'll never forget, as you can imagine. Then the very next day, my mom and dad came over with some Portuguese kale soup. For your Portuguese listeners, <clears throat> If anybody's Greek, Windex cures even cancer for the Greeks. Kale soup is the same; does the same shit for the Portuguese. It, it cures COVID and, and cancer. So my mom had brought some soup to my house with my dad, and my mom had a, a picture frame right here to her chest. She had that to her chest, and she was crying. And she sat next to me on the couch, and she's and I said, "Mom, what do you have?" And she said, I brought something for you because I want you to keep it on your wall. Promise me you'll keep it on your wall. I said, of course. What is it? What do you have? She hands me the picture. I flip it over and I look at it and I peed myself. I started, I started, I peed myself. I started crying. And I said, mom, this is my nurse. This is she. She's my nurse. My mother was saying, yes, I know. It was my grandmother. It was my grandmother who died 25 years ago. And I found out, I found out that my brother, John, who's also a police officer, he is the one who called my mother that night that I got shot. He heard, along with all, all the other officers, that I died en route to the hospital. I was so bad out in the street. No one expected me to survive. So my brother, John, had called my mom to give her the bad news. He didn't have the guts to tell her I died or he heard I died. He just said, he's, he's really bad. We're going to send cruisers up to the house. Be ready. You and dad. We're going to escort you and bring you down to the hospital. Upon hearing this news, my mom fell to her knees, crying, dropped the cordless phone and started praying to her mother, who she prays to every single day. Save my son. Save my son. And that's who came to my side. Wild. Left me speechless. She came to my side. And that's why I don't know who she was. The doctor never saw her. No one saw her there other than me. But I was dead. You know? And, um, so I um, I did the best that I could to recover for the next five months. Walked the neighborhood. I did all the little things. I went back to work in five months. March 1st, 2011, I returned back to full duty. 
Back to the ATF. I didn't want a desk job. I was offered everything under the sun by the chief. And I told him, listen, I don't write any desks. I want to be a cop, a real cop. I want to be out on the street doing what I do, what I do best. So up in informants, getting guns and drugs off the streets. That's what I want to do. I said, you sure about that? And I said, yes, this is what I want. I need to get back on that horse again. I need to be me again. I need to feel whole again. You know, I don't want to feel like I'm special or I have limitations, you know? And uh, I went back to the ATF for about eight months. After eight months, I suffered a major heart attack that was connected to the shooting. That put me out and I was forced to retire. And then in 2015, I, I suffered a major stroke that left me paralyzed my whole left side. I spent the whole summer at, the, at a rehab learning how to walk and talk and feed myself and everything. Yeah. At least you got back, right? You did what you had to do. You went there and did the work. You got back to where you had to be. You proved it all. Yeah. You earned it. You went back. Yeah. Seven months to show what you were made of. All the things out of your control. Everybody was in disbelief that I made it back. And I told them, I said, I'm not going to let it scam me. I got to get back here. I think you won. Out of these eight disputing that you won, you resolved that part of your life. It was resolved. You fixed it. In your mind, whatever needs to be fixed, you showed up and you did it. I, how could anybody ever take that away from you? You can hold that trophy up. No matter what else happens, stuff that's out of your control. You know, you control what you can control, right? You won. And you won. And you, and you got to retire peacefully. No one you won. That's, that's, a whole other, that's a whole other story. <coughs> if, you want, if you have time to get into that. We should do a second episode. We, should, we really should. Was it? It's it's an amazing thing of what happened to me for post retirement. We're trying to retire. You know, I want to do another episode. I have a question for you. Um, I try to live my life um, to the best ability of my soul. Try to make decisions based on what I think is the right thing to do. Um, and I often think about my mortality and, and me being explained to whatever the next thing is, is like, I did, I left this place with a lot more than I, than I came to it. So I have this question for you. Um, how did you feel about the afterlife before the incident? And how do you feel about it now? And can you shed some insight to uh, some of us about that? Yeah. So, um, Prior to this incident, to be really, really honest and candid, the only time you saw me in a church was at a funeral or at a wedding. Mm -hmm. Same. I always believed, but I was skeptical. You know, okay. Is it really true? Does heaven really exist? You know, you want to believe that I was brought up Catholic, of course. My, fam my family is very religious. My mom obviously is. And I really believed it, but I always had my little doubts. But since this happened to me, We're disputing it. You know, I hold the answer to that question that everybody has. You know, when they lose a loved one. You know, I'm sure you've lost a loved one, Dennis, in your in your life. Oh, plenty of grandparents, right? Everybody always wonders, where is my loved one? Are they just in a, a casket underground, ten feet underground, or six feet underground? However deep they bury you, you know, where do they go? Are they really in heaven? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. It exists, you know, so it, 
I like to think that I'm still here to provide some of that, some of that comfort to these poor parents who lose their children at a young age, you know, to a, an illness or an accident or whatever, you know, to a son or daughter that loses their parents or, or a grandparent, you know. I want them to know that they're in a good place. They're not suffering. You know, there is a medical life. How do you feel about death now? I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die. Really not. Mm. What you, what you, Did you see the video that I sent? Jess, about my doctor? And I, I didn't see it yet, no. I suggest you see it from many years, for a decade, my doctor struggled with the science because obviously I went back to the hospital and I told him who that nurse was after I found out. And he was in disbelief because he, he was battling with the science of how can a kid who dies know what's going on and tell me verbatim what I said, things that I did on point. But yet, yeah, see a woman that I didn't see. You know, he's a, is he imagining people? But how did he know what I was doing and what I was saying he, when he was dead? So he, he battled with it. Last year, my doctor died. He had, a, he had a, a procedure on his heart at the hospital. And he died. And he had an experience with the afterlife. And he called me and he said, it's one thing to, to say, I believe you. And he, quote unquote, I fucking understand you. I understand it. Because I lived it too. Or he goes, or I died it too. Which however way you say it, I know what you went through. I, I understand you now. And we have a closer bond to this day because of it. So how bad wow. is that? That my own surgeon experienced the same, a similar thing to me with the afterlife. Ten years later. Wow. Yeah. And he was somebody who was in disbelief. Yeah. And he's a colonel in the army, has done many tours, and he, he'll tell you on the video, if you see it, that he, he questions his faith because of all the, the bad that he saw on the battlefield, you know, young, young men and women dying for their country. And, you know, he, he's, he's a commanding officer thinking these poor kids are losing their lives. You know, you get, you get sour, you get a little, you know, you get rugged thinking, is it really God? Is there really heaven? How can he allow this to happen? So he had his doubts. But it was until he, he himself experienced it. He's a believer. Not even a believer. He really understands it now. And well, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer. Um, some weird things that have happened um, in my life, which are unexplained. And it's funny, a friend of mine, who's probably one of the best human beings I know, uh, in the same year, lost his brother and his father. And uh, at that time, he was very, very angry, and rightfully so. His brother's awesome. And, um, you know, I, I didn't want to talk about his brother for a long time because I, you know, we, we'd meet up, probably, we'd probably go out to dinner three times a year. Mm -hmm. um, and recently in the spring, I brought up his brother. And, uh, you know, I said, what do you think? He started telling me about things because before it was, there's nothing that uh, the home, you had no belief in anything. And I was pleased to hear that he said, I don't know what it is, but I'm going to tell you about some things that have happened and there's no explaining it other than the fact that I'm a fucking believer now too. And I don't want to, I'll, I'll start getting upset talking about his brother. So I don't want to go too deep into that, uh, especially on the podcast, because I, I care tremendously about the guy. Not a, not a long time. 
Uh, we had a very strong friendship very right away, and his, his passing was tragic. And his father was a very nice guy, too. And this wasn't a childhood friend of mine. This is somebody I met uh, in business later on in life. And I admired them. They changed my life. Um, gave me the confidence to do the things that I'm doing now. No portion of it, for sure. Uh, so I'm somebody that, that um, likes to hear about those things. Not because I'm concerned. I think it's important for people to be believers as well. And I share some stories of mine. And some people have stories as well. But to me, they just bring a, a new sense into your purpose of life, knowing that there's something afterwards, maybe keeps you in line to know how you should be behaving and, and leading with your soul, what feels right, what's right, doing the right thing all the time. And you can, you can win and be a good person by being a good person. You don't have to go outside your moral character because at some point there's going to be called into judgment for sure. Um, I'm sure it gave everybody a lot of comfort to know that. There could be listeners of ours, and there's a lot of listeners of ours who may be going through something that even this decision, tying back to answering a message from a guy from a group who suggests that we get you on a podcast, and then you agreeing to come on the podcast and reaching the ears of somebody, your story, you don't know how, how far the impact is. And this is timeless stuff. This is going to be up and available beyond us. And maybe hearing the story provides somebody comfort who may be going through something where they might not have options. They'd be going down a, a, a road into another life very quickly. So support stuff, man. And I, I, I couldn't imagine not doing a second part of this with you. Um, I'll have to gain some composure before we do that, but we'll do that next week. Good follow-up. So don't spoil anything for us. Yeah. Did you know that we have a street cops? We just started this. I have, you know, I know you're not too familiar with the company and, um, we had our first conference in Atlantic City uh, about a month ago, and actually just just exactly a month ago, and we brought 28 police officers in who were shot or traumatically injured in line of duty, and honored them. Something had never been honored, not even acknowledged that they had been through the shooting thing, and that, that was a very very powerful day for me. Um, I went back to my room that night and sobbed, but a good sobbing. A lot of people, you know, a thousand cops that event who probably going through a lot of emotions during that ceremony. Um, we had two guys that were shot very badly in line of duty giving out the awards who are instructors for this company, who I think are great human beings. And uh, that night, I put those guys in the room with their families, and we actually started a street cop survivor. They, I, I said, You name it what you want to name it, but uh, talking to all of you guys in these, in these podcast episodes, I hear a lot of pain. I think you need support. So we actually have a street cop survivor support group. They wanted to call it street cop survivors because I'm not going to, this is your stuff. I don't even deserve to be in the room with you guys. I just want to help you organize something. And they said the first meeting recently, and it was wonderful for them to be able to get together and talk to each other. Cause what I've been told is nobody understands. And a lot of them would like you to go on a, a VA uh, or somebody who's a veteran who was shot in Iraq and things like that. And they said, it's just not the same thing not to downplay or minimize the, the significance of somebody going through something so traumatic. Um, so it's a survivor group for police officers and their families, wives, kids. And it's just the beginning, but it's the beginning of something. We took a picture outside of the, the room that we use at Harris Casino in Atlantic City. I said, this picture even realize the start of something great. And uh, it's in your guys' hands to do something with it. If you need help, I will guide you along the way. 
but I will redact myself from it because I don't belong in it. But I'll guide you if you need advice. And that's where I can come in for everybody. Because uh, that's, that's what I do. I can organize and make things go real well. So probably people who have been through something, maybe listen to this podcast, maybe know somebody who, who has been through something similar. And you don't have to have a big shot to be in that group. You just have to have gone through something very traumatic. And I think that's, I don't think there's criteria that we're, 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 we're making where somebody who's in pain can't join and belong. But I want people to know that it exists. And I want you to know that it exists, Mario, if you want to uh, explore that. And there's no fiduciary gain on my part for it. It's just something that we did. And we'll be doing the best we can working with a financial advisor. Actually, guys, creating a uh, 531C nonprofit for us where they don't call the Street Cop Foundation. We'll be providing as much as we can support wise for those who have been shot, those who will be shot. And, um, you know, I, I always found it to be interesting that if you're killed, we'll take care of you. But if you're shot and you survived, we'll take care of you for eight to 16 months. And then you kind of just float away. And that's not fair. And um, not that it's fair for anybody else who's been killed in line of duty, but these guys need help and support. Some of them return to work, some of them permanently disabled, some of them have difficulty making ends meet. And the world has just forgotten about them. I just want to remind everybody that, and including you, that we have not forgotten. And I, I have a lot going on, and I knew that the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single footstep, and that was that first footstep that night. So if you're interested in it, you can think about it. You don't have to give me an answer here, um, but I'd like to invite you into that, into that group with those guys. And they're probably some of the most profound human beings in mm -hmm. your life. Yeah. So we'll be friends on Facebook after this and I'll invite you to the group and um, I'm going to send you my cell phone number and all that stuff. Uh, anything I can do for you. If you have motivation to get more involved in that and you feel like that's an important thing, don't feel obligated. That's the conversation we had with the, with the first group of guys and girl. We had, no, we had a girl in the group. She was a New Mexico State trooper who was shot. You guys should watch her video online. She's a badass. I actually met her at another event. I was asked to be a keynote at another event in San Antonio, Texas. And I went down there and I was introduced to her. I said, you, you have to come to our event. And we honored her. And she didn't know anything about us. And, uh, you know, I could see it meant a lot to her to be there with us. Because um, I said to them, don't feel obligated to do anything more than just join. Um, everybody's got a, a lot going on in their life. And it's a big to do. But... Certainly the intro to everybody, maybe jump in on their, their monthly Zoom call where they all get together and, and share some, some stories and some things that they're going through. It's, and I'm not saying this to you directly, I'm saying this to everybody who's listening. And we want to invite that with open arms to anybody who wants to join that group. So let's, um, let's save the rest for episode two. I think we did a lot today, a lot of work. I've got to take a breather. This happens to me sometimes when I, when I start to interview people on this podcast, we've been doing a lot of survivor stuff. Um, like, you know, I have children and I have four kids. And so to walk in your shoes for the time, believer. So, um, people see me on our Instagram and, and a lot of the way that I teach is what a lot of emotion, not necessarily emotion I'm displaying now, but the emotion that, uh, I'm passionate about what I do because I care a lot, but, um, you know, inside and, this meant a lot to me for you to take the time. So I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to leave before we, before we start scheduling episodes? Anything else you want to contribute? Uh, you want to say, I don't say contribute, contribute planning. But anything else you wanted to leave on this first episode before we do your second episode? Just, um, I hope your listeners come back to the second episode. It's going to be very informative. 
Um, I'm going to talk a lot about my mission, what I've done post-shooting um, over the last seven years legislatively to try to make some positive change nationwide. And I That's think great. By joining you and having your voice and your platform, I can accomplish my mission a little easier. Serendipity. It took a guy who didn't even know who it was that referred you to be a part of this. And, um, you know, I was, it was a no-brainer for me. And uh, I'm glad it was a no-brainer for you, too. So uh, without further ado, and that's the last thing to say to uh, Mario Oliveira. And I uh, appreciate all of you for being a part of this program and, and who we are as a training company and, and what we're trying to do for the world. And we care. So thank you all for being here.